Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to talk about <clears throat> Helmut Tilaka as a doctrinal preacher. Emil Brunner, magnificent Swiss theologian, delivered to Helmut Tilaka one of the most searing, stinging indictments of his preaching career. He said to Tilaka, I'm going to warn you against being abstruse. That is hard to understand. I'm going to warn you against being a pure academic. I want to warn you against being so esoteric in your communication. In other words, he was saying to him, you can preach to erudite elite theologians, but you can't bring it down to talk to ordinary common people, which is what you're going to be doing for most of your preaching career. And he wanted him to be able to be effective standing behind the lectern in the academy, as well as to be effective standing behind the pulpit in the church. From 1936 to 1940, April 1940 actually, Tilaka served as a professor of theology at the University of Heidelberg. Uh, he was visited before his firing in April 1940 by the Minister of Education of Germany who said, there's coming a time when German faculties will not be composed of wild boars, talking about Tilaka, talking about Karl Barth, but only sucking pigs, to use the analogy of Martin Luther. And sure enough, in April 1940, he was fired. But providentially, Theophilus Verm, the bishop in the Bavaria area, hired him. He went to Ravensburg. And he became a pastor for about two years. It was a providential uh, arrangement. He said, pastoring people put me in touch with the essential themes of how doctrine applied to the lives of common people. He would knock on the doors of his parishioners because he was aloof. He was an ivory tower theologian at first. Now he became pastoral. He knew what it was like to be able to reach into the innermost recesses of the being of people so that he would be more relational. And then after two years at Ravensburg, he's transferred to Stuttgart where he will serve as a pastor there. He will deliver lectures to Swabian pastors. He knew what it was like to spend the night in air raid shelters with his parishioners because they were homeless and he would become homeless. And he knew what it's like to see one of his children taking the mother's cookbook and licking the pages of food because they were so hungry. The people in Stuttgart knew that Tilaka was thinking with them as he preached the sermon. He became a Medea via, a middle of the road, a middle-range theologian who could be a preacher who theologized and yet become a theologian who could preach and could stand behind the lectern in the academy and the pulpit in the church and bring both together. Uh, Tilaka, <clears throat> at the end of the war in 1945, will be called to serve as a professor in Tubingen and will be there from 1945 to 1954, where he would be called to be the dean of the newly established School of Divinity of the University of Hamburg, a non-church-going city. And the first thing he did was to require his faculty to preach. He wanted the students to see that theologians could practice theology. In other words, theologians were able to preach 
so that they could be preachers once again who could theologize. For he said this, theology must be preachable. If it's not preachable, theology is either poor theology or is no theology at all. It's, it's Sandy Ray who pastored the Cornerstone Missionary Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York, who says that the preacher is a resident theologian and what he does is to go to the mountain of theology. He cannot take and lift up the mountain and put it on his pickup truck and then take it to the church and then tell the people to eat it. That's too profound. No. He's got to go there and break it up in bite-sized pieces and put it on his pickup truck and then serve it on Sunday morning so that people have theology that's broken down, not watered down, but broken down so they can handle it. He even demonstrated that in his own preaching. He will preach at St. Mickey Ellis's church in a non-church-going city. Once a week, what we would call Bible conferences or revivals, he'd pack it out, over 3,000 people for five nights, preaching the Apostles' Creed. I believe the Christian's Creed, which is a compendium of a doctrinal digest of preaching. He would, preach. he would preach the waiting father, which is a compendium of the parables of Jesus. He's the first one that I know who does not call the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, calls it the parable of the waiting father because it's not about the son. It's about the father who waits and the father who runs and the father who embraces. So Tilaka is a preacher who theologizes and is a theologian who preaches. It is the Bishop of North Africa, Hippo, uh, Augustine, born 354 A.D., died 430 A.D., who writes what is arguably the first homiletic text, De Doctrina Christiana, on Christian doctrine or teaching Christianity. He writes that Four books, we would call them chapters. The first three deal with hermeneutics, the interpretation of the text. But the fourth one deals with homiletics, the presentation, the delivery of the sermon. He puts both together because they must remain inextricably connected. Yes, I think what we've done today is to spend three chapters on homiletics and one chapter on hermeneutics. And I think that's backwards because you've got to have something to say. <laughs> hermeneutics what to say, homiletics, how to say it. And Augustine is a refined theologian and a refined rhetorician like John Chrysostom and like Irenaeus and Justin Martin, all those individuals who were rhetoricians and yet theologians. And Augustine sets the table for us so that we need to be concerned about our substance. I call substance, in terms of my metaphor, the exegetical escort. And I define the exegetical escort as one who ushers the hearer by the word of God into the presence of Christ, the Son of God, through the power of the Spirit of God for the purpose of transformation. It's Trinitarian, and it relieves me because I have no responsibility for transformation. I do have responsibility to usher people by the word of God, rightly divide the word of truth, cut it straight into the presence of Christ, the son of God, because I can't do the transforming through the power of the spirit of God for the purpose of transformation. And once I lead them into the throne room and transformation takes place, I wait outside the door and I become the midwife that catches the baby, delivers the baby. I didn't produce it, but delivers the baby, and then disciples the baby so that that baby goes from drinking milk to eating meat. It's, it's the substance. But there's also the style. I think that we have almost eliminated style. We don't talk about style much. The Latin word tenere means to entertain. To entertain in the sense of the whole, of holding the attention of people. You got something good to say, Robert Smith, but you're so boring and dull that you put people to sleep. The, the, the word enthusiasm is a combination of two words. 
in theos, in God. So how in the world can I be boring if I'm in God? I'm not talking about this worked up stuff. I'm talking about the stuff that shows that the text has life in it. And I present it that way. I think Hollywood actors and actresses can take a script that's based on fiction and present it as if it's reality. And we'll take a script that's based on reality and present it just like it's fiction. And people who do stand-up comedy, and they ain't talking about nothing, can hold a crowd talking about nothing. And they spent a few hundred dollars to hear nothing. And we have the greatest message in the world, and we seem to be so aloof from it, and the fire is not shut up in our bones. Uh, but then there is the <clears throat> doxological dancer. And I define that by saying the doxological dancer communicates the doctrinal verities of Scripture with such accuracy, that's the first thing, and ardor, so that the exuberant hearer exalts in the exaltation of God. You communicate the doctrinal truths of Scripture, how? With accuracy mm. and then order. Because accuracy and order are not antithetical at all. So that the exuberant hearer, I think people come to church because they want to come to church. It's a terrible place to try to sleep. Those pews are not comfortable. They're going to give me 30 to 40 minutes and I don't have anything to say. And though I have something to say, I say it so poorly that it assists their sleep. No. So that the exuberant hearer exalts, that is rejoices, joys in the fact that God is being exalted. And that's what it's about. I have come to lift him up. And if I be lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people unto me. We are called to preach the whole counsel of God. That's what Paul is saying in his meeting with the elders from Ephesus who've come to Miletus for this pastor's conference. And Paul says in Acts 20, 27, I have not hesitated, I have not shunned from preaching to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God is that broad and overarching concept that unites and ties together every portion of Scripture so that it relates to the overall plan and comprehensive purpose of God revealed in the Scripture by the Holy Spirit in order to magnify Jesus. In other words, it's that broad, overarching concept that unites and ties together every passage of Scripture so that it relates to the overall plan and comprehensive purpose of God. Mm. No scripture stands by itself in isolation, independent of the whole canon. Genesis 37, verse 17. And Jacob sends Joseph to look for the brothers. He comes to a place and asks the man, have you seen my brothers? And the man said, yes, uh, they went that way. That is, they went to Dothan. They went that way. That, that just seems so innocent. That doesn't have anything in terms of a redemptive reverberation to it. But the fact that Joseph went that way so that his brother sold him into slavery to the Ishmaelites who sold him down in Egypt. And Joseph becomes, if you will, the household manager of uh, Potiphar's house. And from there, there's a phony molestation charge that's leveled on him. He winds up in jail. He meets a butler and the baker. And the, the baker is executed, but the butler takes it, recommends him to the Pharaoh. He interprets Pharaoh's dream and this famine that has affected not only Egypt, but even his own homeland. Joseph's plan is accepted. And as a result of that, his brothers come that way. And they have to get grain. And because they came that way, it meant then that none of his brothers starved, particularly Judah. And because Judah didn't starve to death and didn't die, Boaz could exist. And because Boaz existed, then Obed came into existence. Because Obed came into existence, then Jesse came into existence. Because Jesse came into existence, then David came into existence. And Jesus comes out of David because they went that way. Because I've got to take a text and see... How does this text fit in the whole canon? I don't need to just try to preach that text and ignore the whole Bible, which means I need to have some familiarity 
with scripture in its totality. Or the book of Ruth. It is not about what a woman wants. That's not what, it's not. It's not really about dating. There is a redemptive tone to it. There is no bread in Bethlehem because Bethlehem means house of bread. So therefore, Elimelech and Naomi are making their way to Moab or Moab. And because of that, there is no son. They, the two die, Malon and Kilion. But uh, certainly there is no king because the text opens up in the days of the judges, Ruth 1.1. 1, 1. And we know that in the days of the judges, there was no king. In fact, Judges ends the last verse. And the people did what was right in their own eyes because there was no king. But 10 years later, there's a word. There is bread in Bethlehem. And they go back. And then there's a son that's born of Ruth and Boaz. And Naomi says, the people said, this is Naomi's son. But out of that son, a king will come out of the loins so that you are seeing a redemptive reversal from the book of Ruth. And I'm up here spending my time about 10 ways to date someone and don't even talk about what God is doing redemptively. Oh, I, the census planure. There it is in Hosea 11 and 1. Out of Egypt have I called my son. The Exodus called out of Egypt. Eight centuries later, Matthew revisits that text in the fullest sense. Progressive revelation. Matthew 2, 15. Out of Egypt have I called my son. He's not talking about the Exodus. He's talking about his own son, his one of the kind son, his only begotten son, Jesus. Now that Herod the Great is dead, he can return and will be raised up in Nazareth to fulfill the prophecy. He shall be called a Nazarene. I tell you, it's taking and allowing the text to relate to the wholeness of Scripture through the Holy Spirit who enlightens us. Mm. For the purpose of magnifying Christ, I tell you this. If the Holy Spirit's job is to be the public relations manager of Jesus, John 15, 26, when the Spirit has come, he will not testify of himself. He'll testify of me. John 16, 14, when he has come, he will not glorify himself. He'll glorify me. And I can stand up and not testify of Jesus. Isn't it strange that in Luke 9, 31, Elijah and Moses have their eternal vacation interrupted and they show up on the mountain of transfiguration and there is Jesus there. Elijah had outflued, outflew death and Moses had died. Elijah represents the prophets. Moses represents the law and Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment of both law and prophet. And the Bible says in Luke 9, 31, the only thing they talked about was the exodon, the exodus, the death of Christ. They came all the way from heaven to talk about Christ, and I stand up on Sunday morning, and I can't talk about him. I don't have anywhere to go, just get in my car, go a few miles. They came all the way from heaven to talk about Jesus because that was what was on heaven's most important news item, the death of Jesus, which would be followed by the resurrection of Christ. It is this matter of preaching the whole counsel of God. Really, I'm not talking about quoting every scripture in the Bible. I'm talking about putting your text in light of the microscope of all of scripture and asking yourself, how does this text fit in the corpus of all of scripture so that I come up with the Hauskashikti, salvation history, and the redemptive historical moment of that particular text? Uh, definitions. I will just offer one. I think it's an important, and I think the important definition for me, probably uh, the most important one, comes out of the work of E.K. Bailey. Why expository preaching? Ten reasons for expository preaching. This is what Dr. Bailey says. He says, expository preaching is a message taken from a portion of Scripture in order to clearly establish the precise meaning of the text so that the preacher can poignantly motivate the hearer to adopt the attitude and the action 
dictated by me, by the text, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Expository preaching is not a sermon. It's a message. It's a message that's relevant because it comes out of the revelation of God that speaks to people. It's not just my giving people the answer to their what question. Just information. It's more than that. Harrison Fosdick does say some things that are true. And he is right when he says people don't come to church just to hear what happened to the Jebusites. Just giving them information, nothing redemptive in that. I've got to preach in such a way that people have the question, so what? What difference does this make in my life? It's Sunday, but Monday's coming, and I've got to go to court, and my son may be given 10 to 15 years. What difference is this truth going to make in my life? And then the now what question? What am I to do about what the text is saying? It's a message taken from a portion, not a verse, not a fragment, but from a portion of Scripture. And read that portion in order to clearly establish the precise meaning of the text. Live in the text long enough until you smell, until you see, till you taste, till you feel, till you hear. Live in it long enough. And don't say to people, uh, you know the story. They don't know the story. We are living in an era of biblical illiteracy. And what I hate to say is I find that seminarians don't know the story. People didn't grow up with a Bible in their home. Tell the story. Don't assume it goes without saying. Nothing goes without saying. You've got to say it. <laughs> Tell the people exactly what Scripture says. It clearly establishes the precise meaning of the text in which the preacher poignantly motivates. That's keenly. That's passionately. Ah, you've got the logos. You have the egos. But where is the pathos? Where is the passion? I'm not talking about passion you borrow from Adrian Rogers. He had his own. Get yours. Find your voice. It doesn't mean your voice is elevated. You don't have to scream. If you are a soft-spoken person saying God is good, doesn't make it stronger because you yell it. God is good. It's the essence of who you are. Poignantly motivates the hearer to adopt the attitude. Look at the attitude of the text. What's the mood there? And the action. What are you supposed to do there based upon what the text says? That's dictated in the text and is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe that doctrine has to point beyond itself. One of the reasons doctrinal preaching is so dry is that doctrinal preaching has been allowed to forget its role. Doctrinal preaching is a sign. The Bible is a sign, the written word that points to the revealed word. The gospel is a sign, the spoken word that points to the real revealed word, Christ. Doctrine has to point beyond itself. Listen to Job, Job chapter 19, verse 25 to 27. I know that my Redeemer lives. He don't talk about redemption. He wants to talk about his Redeemer. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the latter day he'll stand upon the earth, and after the skin worms are devoured my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall not behold another. Talk about redemption, but let redemption point beyond itself to the Redeemer. We sing that there is a Redeemer, Jesus Christ, God's Son. Talk about the Redeemer. That's what's exciting, not just the doctrine, but who the doctrine points to. Talk about Jesus. Here's this great word for us. Martha has really good eschatology. Lazarus has died, and uh, she was right. Jesus, had you been here, our brother would not, die, would not have died because every time Jesus met death, death died. He really did. Death died when uh, the daughter of Jairus was laying in the bed, and he said to Luther Coon, I say, you little girl, rise, death died. The widow of Nain's son, Jesus interrupted the uh, procession, touched the top of the casket, and said, little boy, rise, death died. And now she said, had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Right. Jesus said, you'll see him again. She says, I know in the resurrection. Good eschatology. Great. Her problem is Christology. Jesus said, I don't want to talk about resurrection. I want to talk about the one the resurrection points to. I am the resurrection and the life. 
you want to talk about resurrection and get into all of these other theories, second coming and so forth, all that kind of, fine. But make sure whether you think he'll come before the millennium or after the millennium or whatever, the fact is he's going to come. And because he's going to come, that's the exciting thing. And there's that red word. And we see it so powerfully that we want to talk about the doctrine. But the doctrine points beyond itself to Jesus. Here's Pilate standing before Jesus in John 18, 38. You know what Pilate asked Jesus? What is truth? And truth is looking at him right in the eyes. He wants to know what about philosophical truth? Jesus says in John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth. We want to talk about epistemology in terms of truth. But he's the living truth. He's the living word. He makes truth true. And therefore, doctrine has to point beyond itself to the one that is to be glorified and the one who's to be worshipped. One of Telica's great contributions, which is radical, and it may not fit you right now because it didn't fit him at first. He says preaching or proclamation precedes theology. And therefore, theology has a subservient role to preaching. Theology is a servant to preaching. Ah, he struggled with that. But this is what he reminds us of. Salvation comes because faith comes by hearing. Romans 10, 17, and hearing by the word of God. Now you got salvation, and for the rest of your life, you are going to delve into theological reflection so that there's a basis for your experience. That's salvific. You get saved, and then you theologize for your rest of your life so that you hear Peter saying in 1 Peter 3, 15, always be ready to give a reason for the apologia, for the apologetic fact lies in you so you don't just have an emotional experience you have an experience that's based upon theological truth it's Anselm his dictum in his prologian where he says faith seeks understanding I believe in order to understand not I understand and then I believe no faith Seek understanding so that I theologize, so that the basis of my faith is a theological and a biblical one. I got saved May 1956. I was seven years old. I don't remember ever hearing the word justification, but I got saved. I don't remember hearing the word propitiation, but I got saved. I don't remember hearing the word sanctification or glorification, but I got saved. Just simple faith. In fact, I want to ask you, how much did you know about adoption when you got saved? How much did you know about justification when you got saved? How much did you know about justification when you got And all of those other doctrines. You get saved, and for the rest of your life, you know what you're doing? You're theologizing. You still don't know everything there is to know about it. You are building a stronger, stronger basis for your experience. So much so that you can't argue people into the kingdom. Faith comes by hearing, just simple faith, and hearing by the word of God. And Tilika will use, I won't, I won't have time for that, so I'll just let that go and move on. There are iron rods that hold concrete together. We drive on the highway every day, and we pay no attention to to the fact that they are embedded in the concrete iron rods that lie below the surface, and we don't even see them. We just take it for granted. There are some iron rods that held Telica's proclamation and his ministry together. For after all, the goal, I think, of preaching is that we preach in order that our hearers will also preach. Oh, I don't mean in the formal sense that they are called. I'm talking about the sense in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, when persecution broke out, um, among the church in Jerusalem. The Bible says everyone left Jerusalem except the apostles. There's that word for diaspora in Acts 8 and 1. They scattered. 
And then in verse 4, it says, everywhere they scattered, they scattered the word of God. When they were scattered, they scattered. So that Tertullian is right, second century church father, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I contend that no Christian has a job. Every Christian has a ministry. God has placed you there maybe as undercover agents for Christ in order to take your pastor's sermon and preach it in the beauty shop, preach it in the grocery store, or wherever you work, you are there in order to proclaim the word of God. So if you are an astronomer, you ought to talk about Jesus as the bright and morning star and the son of righteousness that rises with healing in his wings. And if you are a botanist, you're there to tell people about Jesus, who is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. If you are a doctor, you're there to tell people about Jesus, who is the great physician. If you are a geologist, you are there to tell people about the stone that the builders rejected. If you are an educator, you're there to tell people about Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. In other words, you don't have a job. And what you want to do when you preach, Robert Smith, and you're pastoring or wherever you are, you want to so equip your people with the word so that places you will not go, they'll go speaking the word of God. That's what Peter Taylor Forsyth was trying to tell us. He delivered the Lyman Beecher lectures. He said that preaching is the organized hallelujah of an ordered event. The organized hallelujah of an ordered event. You preach so that others will preach in places that you will never go. Well, one of the iron rods that holds the concrete together in terms of Tidaka's preaching and ministry is the Holy Spirit. Tidaka says, let me give you a picture of the Holy Spirit. And this illustration is in his work, I believe, in the Holy Ghost, in his book, I believe, The Christian's Creed, which is his um, development, sermonically, of the Apostles' Creed. So you stand outside, you look at this Gothic cathedral, and there are stained glass windows. And the windows seem so dull and drab and gloomy. And the windows don't preach. They're mute. They don't have a thing to say. But when you go inside of the Gothic cathedral, and the sun's rays are refracted through the windows, and there you look. And there's a star, and there's a stable, and there is a mother holding a child, the nativity scene of Jesus. And there's a young lad who is in the temple teaching and being interrogated by men who seem to be sagacious and wise. Mm, Jesus at his bar mitzvah. And there is uh, someone in the baptismal pool. There's a dove on his shoulder and evidently someone speaking from the cloud. It's the baptism of Jesus, the son. You're seeing that there. There's someone on the cross. It's his crucifixion. And there's an empty tomb, and someone has emerged. It's his resurrection. And there's someone on the cloud who is ascending back somewhere. It's his ascension. But you don't see that on the outside. You've got to get on the inside to see. That's what the Spirit does. I don't care if you get 15,000 PhDs. The Spirit wrote the Scripture. You don't understand it. Oh, you understand words and sentence. But I'm talking about the revelation. Stuff you can't get from reading a book. And he speaks to you in such a way that it blows your mind and you have to admit flesh and blood did not reveal this. To so the Holy Spirit is one. The incarnation, and I'll stop in about uh, probably about six minutes. The incarnation is another one of the iron rods that holds the concrete together. Because the incarnation for Tilaka, remember, he has lived through World War I, World War II, and other wars, and has preached for all of those decades. The incarnation for him is the solution to the dilemma of a godless world and a worldless God. That is, a world without God and a God without a world. That is, a God who's transcendent but not imminent. That is not in the presence of his people, involved in the affairs of his people. A God who is aloof and separated from his people. And the Germans felt that way. How do you have faith after Auschwitz? And where was God when this took place? And Tilaka says the incarnation is the answer. Oh, I know. 
the Mysterium Tremendum Fascinosum, that according to Rudolf Otto and the knowledge of the Holy, uh, that God is Mysterium Tremendum Fascinosus. He is tremendous mystery who leaves us transfixed with tremors so that there is trembling adoration as we stand before him. Uh, there he is in Psalm 77, verse 19 and 20. God takes and uh, walks through the waters and through the seas, but his footprints are not seen. He's hidden. You don't know where he's going because you don't know where he's been. And then you hear Paul say in Romans eleven thirty three, all the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his ways. His ways are past finding out. And yet the incarnation brings God where we are. Because the incarnation, the word is made flesh and dwell among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We see him. He's the human face of God. Philip, when you've seen me, you've seen my Father. He's the parable of God. He's the story of God. And we have a God who became what he was not, human, and yet remained who he is, God. And a God who could become sin and not be a sinner so that we who are sinners might be made the righteousness of God. That's a tremendous rod that holds the concrete of Helmut Telicus preaching together. One other thing, Telicus preaching, particularly as a doctrinal preaching, had an air of risk and boldness. Risk and boldness. He said when the church gets serious, the church has some questions to ask the world. The church has an agenda to present to the world. He criticized Karl Barth because of his emphasis only on individual salvation, getting people saved. Same thing about Spurgeon, though he writes a book on Spurgeon, Encounters with Spurgeon. He even says about Spurgeon, sell all you have and buy Spurgeon. That's what he said. But he said Spurgeon was just too interested in individual salvation and did not immerse himself into being activistic about what's going on in the world. And so here he is. He goes down to South Africa in his book, Diary uh, from Africa. You know what it talks about? Apartheid in South Africa, in the midst of the people, and shows from Scripture that is unbiblical. He takes and comes to America in his work, Between Heaven and Earth, Conversations, with American, young American Christians. And he stands on the college campus and he says, if America continues to, contreat, to treat the Negro people the way they're treating them, then the same fate that fell upon Germany, and he attributes Germany's defeat to God's judgment, will also be experienced by America. Never got invited again. <laughs> but he had an air of risk and boldness. And he challenges us to get out of our huddle of safety and to let the gospel speak to societal inequities in the context of the Bible. Don't socialize the gospel. Gospelize the social. Let the gospel speak to social situations. They are not either or. They're both and. Don't have time to talk about that, but that's the truth because God is interested in your salvation personally, but he's interested in your family that's falling apart. He's interested in your body. He's interested in children who have nothing at home to eat, he's interested, he's interested, and he's interested. I leave you um, with this. In Paul Shearer's work, The Word God Sent, which is his Lyman Beecher Lectures, there's a moving chapter on preaching as a radical transaction in which he says, nothing will do them any good until it disturbs them. And nothing will disturb them deep enough until it gets to the very depth of their being. Then he goes on to say this. Jesus was always addressing those needs that lie at the root of a man's sense of bewilderment, alienation, and anxiety. And hear the words. He was forever going further in and deeper down. Doctrinal preaching goes further in. It's not concerned about the cosmetic, the superficial. 
further in and deeper down so that the person is experiencing not cosmetic surgery, but radical surgery. I commend him to you. He needs to be visited, revisited, and we can learn from him because he wants to speak to us today and tell us that there are some iron rods that hold our preaching together that we must never compromise and we must never expend and give up. I think that's all I want to say. Okay, we've got a few minutes for questions, and I'll make sure you ask a question with the mic so we can record that. Uh, let me begin, uh, Dr. Smith, just by asking, currently you've seen decades of Christian preaching now, and, and uh, currently what are you encouraged by, and uh, what would you say are some real challenges that you would see uh, that, uh, or concerns you might have uh, currently in terms of preaching? I'm encouraged by the fact that God is making doctrinal preaching necessary. Our plight in America and in the world necessitates more than some of the fluff that we offer people. Doctrinal preaching forces you to get deep into the teaching of Scripture, and that teaching will always point to Christ. Doctrinal preaching is necessary now. It's not an option. It's a necessity. And uh, what I'm seeing in terms of where we are, that was your second question. Um, what concerns me is cowardice-ness on the part of preachers. We don't mind comforting the afflicted. That's the work of the priest. We like that. But we don't want to afflict the comfortable. We don't want to say woe to those who are at ease in Zion. We don't want to do that. I was giving a, um, a lecture at Beeson Divinity School 20-some years ago, and I was talking about prophetic preaching, and the preacher stood up, and, and he, he said this. He says, you know, Dr. Smith, I really want to be more prophetic because the Bible calls for it. There's a prophetic word. He says, but I can't do that because if I speak prophetically, I'll lose my job as a pastor, and I have a family to take care of. So I can't be prophetic in my church. I have to be priestly and pastoral. Well, I think that's, a sh that's unfortunate uh, because um, the church, in essence, is not really um, providing for you. Uh, God is. I don't think I'd be anywhere where my hands were tied and I couldn't be free to preach the truth. I wouldn't be anywhere where a committee would have to take and look at my sermon and edit it before I was allowed to preach it. I just wouldn't be that way. I got to be free and trust that if I'm not to be there, that God has a master key to every lock in the universe and he'll get me where I'm supposed. I've got to be free to preach truth. I cannot eat at Jezebel's table and depend upon what she serves. I've got to trust that God can send a blackbird catering service to feed me. Even when the brooks have dried up, he's got a widow who will give me a little cake and fix that little whole cake. And then, because of her faithfulness, put a cornfield in her cruise and an oil well in her barrel so that when she dips out a pint of oil, he puts in a pint. And when she dips out a, a quart of meal, he puts in a quart and it lasts for the entire three and a half year famine. I just have to be that way. That's what discourages me. Cowardiceness. Yes. Uh, my name is. Uh, my name is Jeff Heim. Hey, Jeff. And um, I, I spoke with you yesterday, yes. but I wanted to share here. I remember. Uh, I was born and raised on the south side of Detroit. When I was five years old, my mom asked me, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And I said, "I want to be a black preacher." Yeah. And uh, I think she didn't have the heart to tell me I was not qualified. Um, <laughs> About 20 years later, I was in seminary. This was around 2000, 2001, and I was at Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis at an expository preaching conference uh, as a preaching student, and I watched what you did, and I turned to my friend next to me, and I said, man, when I grow up, I want to be like that. And I spent the next 20 years preaching in Detroit, and I got pretty good at it, Dr. Smith. Man, I could shuck corn for a white kid. But yesterday... 
you put some bacon grease in a pan and fried up Psalm 23 for all of us and served it, man, served it. And with tears in my eyes, I turned around to three seminary students in their mid-20s, and I said, when I grow up, I want to be like that guy. And I just praise the Lord, and I thank you, and I want to thank you for the 200 people in Detroit whose lives were radically changed by you. In front of all these scholars, sir, you deserve massive acclaim, and I praise the Lord for that. Dr. Smith. Yes, sir, sir. Griffin Gellich. Um, I was hoping you could tell us if you think there's a place for political preaching. You referenced uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick. What does that look like for evangelicals in the moment we're in? I don't think there's a place for political preaching. I think there's a place for preaching that deals with politics. Preaching that treats politics. Preaching that treats In other words, the emphasis has to come from preaching. And preaching addresses everything. What am I saying? You can't really preach. You can't read Robert Smith. You can't read the prophets without seeing that there's a conflict between Elijah and Ahab. You're the one who troubles Israel. That's quite a word to say to the king. Or Moses saying to Pharaoh, God says... Get rid of your free labor. Let my people go. In other words, preaching has to address all spears. I don't like what concerns me about this is that some preachers have jettisoned or thrown overboard the gospel and they become political activists after surrendering the gospel. Uh Uh-uh. No, 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 no. I don't surrender the gospel. I believe that the gospel addresses everything. And text particularly addresses everything. And I don't know why when we get to a text that definitely deals with God shaking up governments and Jesus asking, whose who's superscription, whose writing, whose face is on this coin? Well, it's... Um, it's Caesar. All right, then render unto Caesar the things of the Caesar, render unto God the things of the government of God. And um, Dorothy Day, remember, reminds us that if everything that belonged to God was given to God, then Caesar wouldn't have anything because it all belongs to God. I think that we don't get up to preach a political sermon. We let the text address it, and we don't bypass it, and it won't be comfortable I wish I had time to talk about that, but I don't. But uh, I just think it's important uh, to remind individuals that God must always be over government, that there is a hill higher than Capitol Hill, that the flag is not greater than the cross, and exchange it someday, because some people are more patriotic than they are Christian, and they'll fight you over their party affiliation but they lay down the cross I just think that my ultimate allegiance and I'm patriotic but my ultimate allegiance is not to the white house but to the right house I don't care who's there in my father's house that's what my ultimate allegiance is will I pray for our president do I love our president yes but ultimately my allegiance is to him and when I say him I'm talking about one who does not need to be nominated, cannot be elected, and sure enough can't be impeached. (laughs) He succeeds himself. So stop saying God is still on the throne. Where else you think he's going to be? Stop saying (laughs) still on the throne. He's not going to abdicate his throne. Okay. Uh, We got time for one more. Thank you very much. Hey, um, my name is Stephen. Uh, hey, I'm Steve. a church historian here. One yeah. of the things I wanted to ask is I really appreciated uh, your reference to Augustine and this emphasis on the importance of hermeneutics uh-huh. and rightly understanding and interpreting the text. I-, I wondered if you might just speak for a moment about um, the the importance of handling the text in such a way that it's convictional, that you are you're presenting the truths of God to his people each and every time you preach, but also tempering that with humility because 
the text is really hard to interpret in some places. And so how do you as a pastor shepherd, you know, your people through that sort of that, that conflict? And much of it has to do with pastoral ethos. Paul says, speak the truth, Ephesians 4.15, as I recall, in love. Speak the truth in love. My mama would say to me, as she whipped me, this is hurting me more than it's hurt you. And she'd be crying and just whipping me. I wanted to say to her, well, if this has hurt you that bad, don't, don't, don't hurt like that. You just stop. Just, you know, fine. But what she was saying to me is, I've got to do this now so that someone else will not beat your head in and shoot you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to speak the truth in love so that you know I love. I never doubted the fact that Mama loved me. And I knew that she was chastising me because she loved me. All of us know this is true. There are children who wish that they had curfews. They wish that their parents disciplined them. They can come in when they want. They can do anything. In other words, they don't care. At the Smith house, you had Smith name. Couldn't do that. So I think that our congregation ought to see tears in our eyes. Hmm? Um, R.W. Dale, as I remember from the Birmingham, uh, England church, was talking about um, hell and was saying that the only person who really needs to preach on hell, and I think this, is, this was Henry Drummond he was talking about, uh, ought to be Henry Drummond because he always preaches it with tears in his eyes. Do you hear Jesus say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou who killest the prophets and stones those who were sent unto you. Listen to this. How often would I have gathered you like a hen gathers its biddies, its chicks, but you wouldn't come. The disappointment, the tears, the tears, the tears. And so the ethos. I say this to young pastors. If you give care to the souls of your people during the week, they'll give care to your sermon on Sunday. If you will be a priest during the week, you can be a prophet on Sunday. But if you're not a priest during the week, you're not there when someone died, you're absent, you're doing all these revivals, you're doing everything, you're just not there. You're not being priestly. On Sunday morning, you want to be prophetic. Oh, no, they won't take it. That's why your preacher, the pastor, does not have to be an outstanding preacher. But they'd rather hear their pastor than to hear what you and I would consider the greatest pulpitarian in the world. You know why? Because the pastor has been there to bury the dead, to hatch uh, the children that were born and to dispatch the dead and to match those who are getting married. Been there, been priestly. Therefore, they can take the prophetic voice because they know that the pastor can. That's really important. And we're losing that. We really are. We're losing that.